0: Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy This is session number 14 of Alice's Adventures And tonight, we're going to get back to the walrus and the carpenter More poetry, Charloniel. That's exactly it Just where we are And just what I was hoping you would be thinking Because that is just what we're going to do Um. Uh, so, yeah, let's see, I'm very faint, am I? Okay, well, I could turn myself up a little bit But I don't want to go too loud Um, Okay, excellent. Um, Well, I hope you can hear me a little bit better now. Um, Just a quick reminder to everybody that we are in our fall fundraising campaign, um, which we delayed somewhat, but we're doing now. Um, And to thank everyone, so many people, of course, have supported uh, Signum and what we've been doing over the years. Of course, what we're doing here tonight in the Mythgard Academy was started on the very first... Uh, fundraising campaign we did back in twenty thirteen and has been uh one way in which we have um it's been sort of the the first kind of spin off of our uh of our fundraising campaign as we have um been reading books together that have been elected and voted by our donors and supporters uh so i am uh I am definitely looking forward as we continue this um you know continue our study not only here tonight but as we move forward um you know this whole set of sessions this whole sort of online book club that we've been doing now for 10 years is uh uh is really just a wonderful um uh sort of testimony to the ongoing sort of support and relationship between our donors and signum uh very very uh uh, very happy about that. Yeah, Dolor Stroke says, my proposed books have never been selected. I know, it's tough. Uh, democracy is hard. <laughs> democracy is hard, he says, the day after Election Day. Um, but uh, but yeah, 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 I know. It, c- it can be difficult. Um, we've, Dolor Stroke, we've particularly had a few books that have been like a bridesmaid many times, but never a bride, right? Um, and uh, we'll see. They may still... They may still come around. Um, but uh, anyway, I just I definitely would uh, invite everybody. If you uh, uh, thank you, if you have been supporting Signum University, I want to offer, uh, you know, my gratitude to you and my recognition for everything that you guys make possible and just invite you if you've never made a donation to Signum University to consider it. We're totally we are totally tax exempt. Tax-exempt organization, so your donation to Signum is completely tax-deductible, and uh, it's so uh, it's a a great way to support not only broadcasts like this but all of the uh, educational programs and other programs that we're starting up. Uh, so many things. There are too many good books, Dora Stroke. That's exactly. Uh, um, uh, that is exactly. That is exactly a problem. So, we'll have to keep continuing and doing this for a long, long time, which is one of the reasons why Signum is here and uh, one of the things that I am looking forward to continuing our discussions and continuing the adventure of Signum University as we move forward. Um, yeah, yeah. um What if we added another couple dozen sessions each week? Yeah, well, we would get through more books faster. That's true. That's true. Um, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Sarah says it's not that there are too many good books. You can't really have too many good books. Just too little time to discuss them. Certainly true. Certainly true. Um, yeah, <laughs> if yesterday had been about books, it would have been much more fun, uh, uh, Gowan. I totally hard to disagree with that point. Um, but um, anyway, let's um, let's jump back into our discussion of the walrus and the carpenter. So, Um, let's, uh, recall, we had, um, been going through and looking at listening to really, uh, the sort of what what I was calling the, the oral vocabulary of this poem, right? Which is always where I like to start. Make sure that we are hearing things properly, that we have the, uh, the rhythm and the shape of the poem in our head so that as we go through, and we hear, you know, we can, we can pick up the cues that we're receiving from the poem. Um, so let's um, uh, let's start reading again. This time we can go through and actually discuss the content. The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. He did his very best to make the billows smooth and bright. And this was odd because it was the middle of the night. The moon was shining sulkily because she thought the sun had got no business to be there after the day was done. It's very rude of him, she said, to come and spoil the fun. Now, let's start with these first two stanzas. Um. Where does the beginning of this poem place us? Um. First of all, notice the overall shape of that first stanza. Not just the sound shape, which we've discussed already, but the way, so we have the first four lines, right? And in the first four lines, we would have no indication that anything was strange or unusual, right? Um, The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. He did his very best to make the billows smooth and bright." Sure. Okay, so we're just, we're just setting the scene, right? And the scene is the sea. Is it on the shore? Doesn't necessarily say it's on the shore, but it's either on the shore looking out at the sea, or it's on a ship looking out at the sea, or whatever, right? Um, we have a personification of the sun, right? He did his very best, that is the sun, to make the billows smooth and bright. So we have a description of the sunshine, which uh, ascribes motivations to the sun, right? Um, first, I mean, starting in line two there, shining with all his might, right? So the sun isn't just shining, it's not just a passive experience, right? The sun is exerting himself to shine on the sea. Right, He's putting forth special effort to shine upon the sea. And then we hear why. He's doing his very best to make the billows smooth and bright. Well, how lovely, right? And this was odd because it was the middle of the night. Um, the last two lines introduce this turn, right? The sun, having been personified, Right? Um, And having been indicated, you know, having this, um, uh, it's being indicated to us that the sun is putting forth a lot of effort, right? We now find that the sun's effort is actively, well, strange at the least, if not actively mischievous, right? The sun is behaving oddly because it's shining in the middle of the night the moon was shining sulkily because she thought the sun had got no business to be there after the day was done it's very rude of him she said to come and spoil the fun um, notice the change in rhythm stanza one we had that break at the end of line two We had breaks at the end of every pair of lines, right? The rhyming word signaled a break. The sun was was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. He did his very best, right? In the second stanza, we're enjambed. We're following up the turn of that first. So we're proceeding in this like regular fashion, setting up the turn at the end of the first stanza. And then... The moon was shining sulkily because she thought the sun had got no business to be there after the day was done. We have this um, one four-line unit, which tells us what the moon was doing and ascribes also effort and motivation to the moon, right? The moon, how is the moon shining? The sun is shining with all his might. The moon is shining sulkily and we're told what she thinks. Right. The sun had got no business to be there after the day was done. It's very. And then the turn. Right. The final couplet or the final two lines, rather, um, give us a line of dialogue from the moon complaining about the sun. It's very rude of him, she said, to come and spoil the fun. Um, Yes, Tomas, the sun is male and the moon is female here. Is that the norm in English? Yes. Um, I know. For Tolkien fans it feels weird, actually, to have the moon be female and the sun male. But yes, following the classical tradition, um, where the god of the sun is male and the goddess of the moon is female, that is by far um the the Tolkien tradition is the unusual one, uh, as far as, as far as this goes. Um, I'm not saying unique, you know, that no one ever did it that way. I'm just saying This is the common one. Yes. Um, yes. Um, and Edith, you're right. The shining of the moon is derivative of the shining of the sun, right? Um, so there is a, there, I agree. There is a kind of irony. Um, there's a kind of irony in there. Um, notice the um yeah jack rabbit i think you're right um this does seem to be the um attitudes personalities um kind of you know unexpected and animated personalities that we see in both the sun and the moon here um do kind of remind us of the fact that in Looking Glass Land, things have faces and personalities, right? Like the face on the opposite side of the, you know, on the, on the, on the face of the clock, right? That we, you know, that we see first. And the talking flowers and that kind of thing. Um, even the talking gnat who becomes the giant talking gnat, right? Um, so that seems sort of sensible enough in context, right? That is, or rather in keeping with the immediate context that we see. (coughs) By the way, before we go on, we should observe. Remember that the entire Tweedledum and Tweedledee episode of which this is a part is contextualized by a poem that she recites, the Tweedledum and Tweedledee nursery rhyme, right? So there is a real world, there's a real world poem which is um, uh, sort of structuring, right, sort of um, uh, prompting this entire episode. Um, Alice believes she knows who both of them are and what is going on and what they're going to do because she knows this real-world poem, that the real-world poem has some kind of um, you know, determining effect, on Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Um, Now we're getting a looking glass poem in which things are acting in a looking glass manner, right? We're getting like a a, a looking glass land perspective on things within their poem. Um, Anyway, we'll come back to the... uh, We'll come back to the the real world poem that is... um, you know, and its relationship to what happens with Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Um but um yeah I totally believe that um the nearly oxymoronic status of the giant net is definitely something that uh um Lewis Carroll was going for there. Okay. Anyway, back to the poem. One last question before I Leave Stanza Two. Um Apart from the fact that personalities, motivations, and strange behaviors are being attributed to the sun and moon, there's another oddity, right? Um, There's another oddity about the whole situation here. Because she thought the sun had got no business to be there after the day was done. You see the problem here? How do you define the day? When is the day over? When is the day done? The day is done when the sun goes down, right? Um, the whole question of whether it's day or night. It is odd for the sun to be shining in the middle of the night, but that's odd in more than one sense, right? Right? It's odd if the sun has somehow, you know, ceased in its regular journey, right? If the sun is uh, moving in an unexpected way, that's odd for sure, right? Um, But um, when um, when you say the sun is shining in the middle of the night, on what basis? Can one even assert that? Right. It raises the question. Um, it raises the question: What defines day and night? Right. I mean, the day is when the sun is up, and the night is when the sun is down. Right. Or I guess not. If that's if that's not the definition, then what is the definition? What makes day day, and what makes night night? We'll notice where we go immediately in stanza three. The sea was wet as wet could be. The sands were dry as dry. You could not see a cloud because no cloud was in the sky. No birds were flying overhead. There were no birds to fly. Um, what? The sea was wet as wet could be. The sands were dry as dry. You could not see a cloud because no cloud was in the sky. That pair of lines has always delighted me. You could not see a cloud because no cloud was in the sky. That's why. Why couldn't you see any clouds? Because there weren't any. Yeah, uh, Edith... um... There is a sense in which at the beginning this starts to sound like a different kind of nonsense poem, right? Like we're suspending basic ideas. Like, you can have simultaneously nighttime and sunshine, right? Um, Yeah. Oh, by the way, this reminds me. I wanted to share with you guys. So this past weekend, I was uh, at... SoCal Moot. And I was being hosted uh, by a delightful couple who has uh, been friends of Signum for a long time and have come to many moots. And they were hosting me at their house and we went to SoCal Moot together. Um, and their house is on top of a hill. quite a Quite a large hill. Wonderful view. Their house was on top of the hill. And guess where they lived? Center Valley. They lived in Center Valley, on the top of the hill. And I was like, dog on it. The red queen was right. Um, so I have officially seen, uh, uh, you know, that there are hills compared with which I would call that hill a valley. So there you go. Um, I was just, I, 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 as soon as I, I didn't know what the town was cause I didn't like put in directions or anything. They picked me up and drove me to the house and I was like, Oh, so what's the name of the town? They were like, Center Valley. And I was like, well, all right. There we are. Um, So, see, I guess Alice is wrong. You can, in fact, have a hill, which is a valley. Um, Anyhow, um, Valley Center. That's right. Valley Center. Yes. Yes. Did I say Center Valley? Well, close enough. Anyway. Valley, right? It's in the valley. Valley Center. Valley Center on top of the hill. Okay. Okay. What we get in stanza three here is not the kind of contradiction that we get in stanza one and two, the kind of comical contradiction, which invites us to ask the question, what does day and night even mean if you have the sun up in the middle of the night like this? And the answer, well, in the third stanza, we go in a quite different way. What was the sea like? Wet. The sea was wet as wet could be. The sands were dry as dry. So, we start with a simple observation. Let's choose an adjective to describe the sea. Wet. Okay. Let's choose an adjective to describe the sand. Dry. Okay. How wet is the sea? As wet as wet could be. How dry were the sands? As dry as dry there is yes dollar stroke you're right that carol delights in tautologies um but this is a shift right from what began as a contradiction an apparent contradiction right an almost a kind of paradox of the sun shining very brightly in the middle of the night and then we shift in the other direction from para- from paradox to tautology, right? The sea, which is water. You know, the, the water was as wet as wet can be. Yeah. Why couldn't we see any clouds? Because no cloud was in the sky. Why weren't there any birds flying overhead? Because there weren't any birds. Right? Everything that's said in this stanza, clouds, birds, sea, and sands, are all... It's all tautological, right? There are no birds because there are no birds. There are no clouds because there are no clouds. The water is very, very wet. Is as wet as wet. The sand is as dry as dry. Yeah, Mighty Felix, exactly. It's like the opposite of nonsense. It's like the extreme opposite of nonsense, right? If you want to avoid... Nonsense. Remember when the Red Queen was saying, I've heard nonsense compared with which that's as sensible as a dictionary? Well, one thing that's more sensible than a dictionary would be this, right? Tautology is the logical opposite of nonsense, right? But we get more on the sand. The walrus and the carpenter were walking close at hand. They wept like anything to see such quantities of sand. If this were only cleared away, they said it would be grand. If seven maids with seven mops swept it for half a year, do you suppose the walrus said that they could get it clear? I doubt it, said the carpenter, and shed a bitter tear. So when the walrus and the carpenter arrive, They are walking along the beach and they are weeping they are weeping because there is so much sand at the beach. I mean, this beach this would be a grand place if not for the fact that it's so thoroughly littered with sand. If only somebody would sweep it so that the sand were cleared away then that would be grand. And so, uh, if you... If seven maids with seven mops swept it for half a year, do you suppose that they could get it clear? I doubt it, said the carpenter, and shed a bitter tear. Yeah, dollar stroke exactly there. Um, if, this, if only this beach weren't so beachy. Like, the sand, that's kind of the definition of a beach, Right? Um I um yeah, yeah, now, I'm not saying I have no sympathy for the walrus and the carpenter at all. um, I am not myself a huge fan of the beach, and um i I have been known to say to my family that the only things that I don't like about the beach are sand, sun, and salt water, but apart from that, um the beach experience is one of my favorites um but um. Anyway, um, yeah, Edith, exactly. Beaches are too sunny. I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, not a fan of the sun, of the glaring sun, not a fan of the sand, and not a fan of salt water. But apart from that, I love the beach and the ocean. Um, but um, the tears, right? The salt tears that the walrus and the carpenter are, are weeping um, the bitter tears, right? Um, which means salt are, well, I guess we're wetting the sand. We start with the sun and the moon and the day and the night topsy-turvy and messed up. Then we shift to tautology. The water is very wet. The sand is very dry. There are no clouds because there are no clouds there are no birds because there are no birds and now this beach would be wonderful if only it were less like a beach if we could remove the beach the beach would be perfect um okay now we are bringing in the oysters Oh, oysters, come and walk with us, the walrus did beseech. A pleasant walk, a pleasant talk, along the briny beach. We cannot do with more than four to give a hand to each. Yeah, I was, uh, Tarlonio, I was totally, um, I was totally side-quoting Mr. Bingley about balls when I was talking about beaches there. Oh, hang on. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, oysters come and walk with us. Right, jackrabbit, exactly. Oysters do not have feet to walk. And they don't have hands to hold. Nor do they have mouths to speak, a pleasant walk, a pleasant talk along the briny beach. Um, we cannot do with more than four to give a hand to each. So, yeah. Um, now we are, what, topsy-turvy again? One of the things that I find very challenging about this poem... Is the way it seems to be shifting about. That is, the joke on the one hand seems to be things turned upside down. The joke on the other hand seems to be things stated tautologically. And then... the Now we're back into topsy-turvy land? Let's imagine that oysters can walk, talk, and hold hands... The eldest oyster looked at him, but never a word he said. The eldest oyster winked his eye and shook his heavy head, meaning to say he did not choose to leave the oyster bed. But four young oysters hurried up, all eager for the treat. Their coats were brushed, their faces washed, their shoes were clean and neat. And this was odd, because, you know, they hadn't any feet. For the first four lines, It sounds like we're merely anthropomorphizing the oysters right quite extremely actually right four young oysters hurried up i guess i guess they can walk right their coats were brushed their faces washed their shoes were clean and neat okay so they're like children right with clean neat shoes and brushed coats and faces washed how wonderful and this was odd because, you know, they hadn't any feet. Just as it's odd for the sun to be up in the middle of the night. And this was odd because it was the middle of the night. Um, we are reminded, right? We are forcibly reminded that it's very odd that they're wearing shoes because they haven't any feet. Um, yeah, Mo Dylan. I don't know where they keep their shoes or, you know, what they, what they do with their shoes. Right. But it isn't walk with them or walk in them because they don't have any feet. How are they hurrying up? I don't know. Notice how this is set up by the eldest oyster stanza. The eldest oyster looks at him, winks his eye, shakes his head meaning that he did not choose to leave the oyster bed. So now we have the oyster bed, but the oyster bed, we're working on the, the pun here, right? It's like he's, um, he's sleeping in a bed and doesn't want to get out of bed, right? Um, it's not that kind of bed, but that's sort of the implication there. Again, he is being anthropomorphized here, you know, with his, his eye and his head and everything. Um, at first, when never a word he said, it kind of sounded like, well, maybe it's because oysters can't talk. Right? Um, Except the rest of it seems to suggest that maybe, maybe they could, right? And they have coats and faces and shoes, but no feet. Four other oysters followed them, and yet another four, and thick and fast they came at last, and more and more and more, all hopping through the frothy waves and scrambling to the shore. The walrus and the carpenter walked on a mile or so, and then they rested on a rock conveniently low, and all the little oysters stood and waited in a row. So first four oysters come up at their invitation, right? They can't do with more than four to give a hand to each. So the four come up, and then four more come up, and yet another four. They're coming up four by four, and thick and fast, they came at last, and more, and more, and more. Notice the way that the momentum of this line is emphasized by the internal rhyme. Right? Thick and fast, they came at last, and more, and more, and more. Um, we got a near internal rhyme with their coats were brushed, their faces washed. Right? Brushed, brushed and washed, not quite a rhyme, but but there's that consonants in the middle, right, with the S-H-E-D uh, at the end of that syllable there. Um, but we get it much more forcibly here in stanza, what are we on, nine, right? Uh others, oysters followed them, and yet another four, and thick and fast they came at last, and more and more and more. This, by the way, all hopping through the frothy waves and scrambling to the shore, is the exact halfway point of the poem, just for future reference. And yes, you're right, Fourth Dauntless. Not only the internal rhyme, but the punchy single syllables, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and then notice, um, Fourth Dauntless, how the sort of corresponding to the punchy monosyllables in that stanza, we get the delightful, conveniently low. Right. Five of the six syllables in line four of the next stanza are one single word. Right. The only time that that happens in the entire uh, in the entire poem. Um, There's a kind of. uh, Well, we're we're stopping. Right. We're resting. We're lingering on this. The walrus and the carpenter walked on a mile or so, and then they rested on a rock conveniently low. And all the little oysters stood and waited in a row. Um, okay. So stop for a second. What's happening here? What cues do we have in the first 10 stanzas of the poem to understand what on earth is going on in this poem? The walrus and the carpenter began by bemoaning the beachiness of the beach. Right, they just wish the beach were less like a beach. But having apparently gotten over that, um Yeah, yeah. Um we're getting to an oyster abduction story, or rather we are in an oyster abduction story. Um and but we don't know it yet do we can we be sure what cues do the first stanzas of the first ten stanzas of the poem tell us the walk with the walrus and the carpenter is described as a treat the four young oysters hurried up all eager for the treat right um Oh, oysters, come and walk with us, the walrus did beseech. A pleasant walk, a pleasant talk along the briny beach. We cannot do with more than four to give a hand to each. The old oyster is the big clue. Yes. Yeah, Mighty Felix and Fourth Dauntless are both thinking this, right? The eldest oyster looked at him, but never a word he said. The eldest oyster winked his eye and shook his heavy head, meaning to say he did not choose to leave the oyster bed. The eldest oyster is the eldest for a reason. The silence of the elder oyster, the winking of the eldest oyster, suggests that there is something to be known which is not on the surface, right? The shaking of his head suggests it's not a good lookout for the young oysters. He's not going to choose to leave his oyster bed. The eldest oyster isn't going to be caught that easily, right? And the but at the beginning of the next stanza, but four young oysters hurried up all eager for the treat, um and yes, there certainly is a very ominous um a very ominous resonance to the word treat, right? Um The walk is going to be a treat, but not for them. Yes, Mo and Thistledown. Um, are both a little bit scandalized that the eldest oyster doesn't warn the young ones. Don't know what to say. Um, (laughs) Don't know what to say. Um, Yeah, I hear that. I don't know how we're supposed to feel about it, though. Um, That the eldest oyster is colluding, right? That... um, Uh, the shaking of his heavy head makes the eldest oyster seem a little bit world weary Um, and yet certainly it's unarguable he does nothing to help the other oysters Um, yeah Um, maybe he figures they wouldn't accept advice possibly Possibly, the eldest oyster might has might have seen this trick several times, right? Um, yes, um, Karina, you're right. Uh, I always feel a pang for the eager young oysters, kind of like young children following a Pied Piper into a deep, dark place. Yes, it does feel a bit that way, doesn't it? Um, There is something... They are explicitly like children. Their coats were brushed, their faces washed, their shoes were clean and neat. And this was odd, because, you know, they hadn't any feet. We're reminded they're not children, right? So we get the... Oddity, these are oysters, right? So it's very odd that they have shoes at all because they're not, in fact, children. Um, but yeah, no, that the Pied Piper is exactly it, right? They're just called to go on a pleasant walk along the beach um, and tempted to their doom as it turns out. And all the little oysters stood and waited in a row, just like children. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax, of cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot and whether pigs have wings. But wait a bit, the oysters cried, before we have our chat, for some of us are out of breath and all of us are fat. No hurry, said the carpenter. They thanked him much for that. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things. Of shoes and ships and sealing-wax, of cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot and whether pigs have wings. Notice again we get the four lines, and then the turn in the last two lines of the stanza once more. Right? <laughs> JJ says, the walrus introduces his space course. Yeah. Um. Yeah, exactly. Um... Shoes, ships, sealing wax of cabbages and kings. It's an odd list of things to talk about. Some very familiar, many mundane. Sealing wax and cabbages are not especially interesting as topics of conversation. Ships, perhaps a little bit more. Shoes, well, they have clean and neat shoes, but no feet, so there's something going on there. Kings are always, you know, well-received. And why the sea is boiling hot? And whether pigs have wings? The sea isn't boiling hot. I guess you can debate about whether pigs have wings if you don't know anything about pigs. But again, what's the pattern here? Why the sea is boiling hot. Um, interesting. JJ says, for some reason I can't help but group ships, sealing wax, and kings together. Well, cabbages and kings are linked together through alliteration, right, with a hard C sound at the beginning. But certainly kings sign things and seal them with sealing wax, and they probably have ships also. Shoes and cabbages are a little bit more domestic, right? Um, Thistledown asks, did they say when pigs fly? I don't know for sure. If somebody could find that out, I would be very interested to know. But I think yes. I think... I'm trying to think of any any literary examples of the saying, when pigs fly. But I don't... remember for sure. Um, do you boil oysters before eating them? No. You do not. Oysters are always, almost always, eaten raw. You can get them deep fried. I've had deep fried oysters too. Um, But generally, you eat them raw. Um... Yeah, Jocelyn says, does anyone else get a creepy twinge about an older male inviting youngsters along for storytelling and fun and then exposing the predation? Uh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, okay, Edith, thank you. Let's see here. The most general consensus that the term about flying pigs originated in Germany or Scotland? Right, but when? Prior to this, presumably? Oyster soup was, pop- was popular, but it's cream-based. Sure, sure. Um, I haven't heard of oyster soup, but I can believe it. In any case... It's very clear that there's not going to be any boiling involved here, too. Oh. Possibly, Sarah J. says in 1616. A reference to pigs flying in the air. In John Withall's *A Short Dictionary for Young Beginners*, hmm, huh. I don't know, but okay, the association between pigs and wings appears to have some uh, some antiquity to it—not antiquity, but been around for a little bit. Okay. I have no idea how pigs fly in the air with their tails forward. Yeah. That, um, uh, that beats me too, Jocelyn. No clue. Um, the walrus is what? Distracting them? The oysters? throwing out random things to talk about, including one thing which is overtly nonsensical, why the sea is boiling hot. Does this uh, suggest that he is not even paying attention to what he's saying? The oysters ask for some of us are out of breath and all of us are fat. No hurry, said the carpenter. Um... So the carpenter is not in a hurry for the chat. Um, A loaf of bread, the walrus said, is what we chiefly need. Pepper and vinegar, besides, are very good indeed. And, And now, if you're ready, oysters dear, we can begin to feed. This, of course, is the primary turn in the poem, right? When the... Uh, predatory intentions of the walrus and the carpenter are made explicit. Notice when it happens. This uh, poem consists of six line stanzas, right? And as we have seen several times, um, the turn comes in the last two lines. So you have the four lines that set it up, and then you've got the turn in the last two lines. That's been a shape we've seen several times, right? Notice we have 18 stanzas, right? Six sets of three. And we've had exactly four sets of three setting this up. And then at the beginning of the fifth set of three, like the fifth line in the stanza, we have the turn. Um, what they're actually going to chat about is a loaf of bread, pepper and vinegar. Um, because now if you're ready, oysters, dear, we can begin to feed. Um, they're not going to chat after all. They're going to eat the oysters um, while still speaking affectionately, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. never had vinegar on oysters. This makes me think, that might be good. Um, but anyway. Um, but not on us, the oysters cried, turning a little blue. After such kindness, that would be a dismal thing to do. The night is fine, the walrus said. Do you admire the view? It was so kind of you to come, and you are very nice. The carpenter said nothing but... Cut us another slice. I wish you were not quite so deaf. I've had to ask you twice. I love that line, too. I wish you were not quite so deaf. I've had to ask you twice. Um, ah, <laughs> interesting. Gowan, okay. Richard II, Act Three, Scene Two. Also set on a beach. Let's talk of graves, of worms, and epitaphs. Interesting. The one thing I would say about that connection, Gowan, is that I think that Shakespeare's Richard II would love this poem. <laughs> I just do. He would love this poem. Um, of course, the difference is that Richard's topics, uh, suggested topics of conversation, graves of worms and epitaphs, um, does have a similar rhythm. JJ, you're right. They, of course, hold together. They have some things in common, right? Um, it's clear It's clear that there is a single topic in mind, right, when you have somebody proposing to talk of graves, of worms, and epitaphs. Um, it does sound like of shoes and ships and sealing wax. Agreed. Agreed. I think the rhythm is very similar. Um, so for our... Shakespeare attuned audience which is to say anybody in the British reading public um, would they get that would they hear that would they feel that um, an echo of Richards of graves of worms and epitaphs of shoes and ships and sealing wax um, possibly possibly Um and therefore be already thinking about death as the walrus begins? Possibly. Ah, Karina, you're thinking of the wrong Richard. That's Richard the III. Um, uh, Richard the II Second was the one who gets deposed by Bolingbroke and contemplates death and mortality uh, in some rather extreme examples of um, metaphysical poetry for the majority of the rest of the play. Um... He was not, in fact, a walrus, however. JJ. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Man. Sorry. I'm just remembering... My Shakespeare class in grad school. One of the most wonderful classes I took. We spent... A month talking about, we spent a week talking about much ado button no, not much ado about nothing. Um, all's well that ends well. And we spent a month talking about Richard II. And then we spent two months talking about measure for measure. And that was the whole semester. <laughs> it was, yeah. Um, okay. listen to the rhythm in those three stanzas again a loaf of bread the walrus said is what we chiefly need pepper and vinegar besides are very good indeed now if you're ready oysters dear we can begin to feed but not on us the oysters cried turning a little blue after such kindness that would be a dismal thing to do the night is fine the walrus said do you admire the view it was so kind of you to come, and you are very nice. The carpenter said nothing but cut us another slice. I wish you were not quite so deaf. I've had to ask you twice. Um, man. You hear it? Hear how the predominant rhythm of the poem is iterated and reestablished by the walrus and the carpenter. However, um, The oysters, the oy- their, their meter stumbles all over the place. Turning a little blue, after such kindness, that would be a dismal thing to do. There's, we like lose the I am's entirely in that line. After such kindness, after, two syllables with a trochaic feel, stressed, unstressed than a one-syllable word just sitting there. Such. Kindness. Again, stressed, unstressed. You can't do after such kindness. That would be... I get You can't read it iambically, even if you try. After such kindness, that would be a dismal thing to do. The to-do is the only part of that entire two lines which has any kind of... Uh, an iambic feel. Notice he keeps inserting words which strike against the dominant iambic rhythm of the poem. After, kindness, dismal. Um, and then the walrus reasserts it. The night is fine, the walrus said. Do you admire the view? It was so kind of you to come, and you are very nice. Um, yeah, it does get creepier and creepier, doesn't it? Just look at the view, kiddies. Nothing to see here. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The carpenter. So the walrus is indulging in all of this um, distract, just as he seemed to be distracting them with discussion topics before. Right. Now he's, you know, the night is fine. Do you admire the view? It was so kind of you to come and you are very nice, which is true in a different sense. They're very nice in the sense of being very tasty. It seems a shame the walrus said to play them such a trick. After we've brought them out so far and made them trot so thick, so quick, sorry, and made them trot so quick, the carpenter said nothing but the butter spread too thick. I weep for you, the walrus said. I deeply sympathize. With sobs and tears, he sorted out those of the largest size, holding his pocket-handkerchief before his streaming eyes. Oh, oysters, said the carpenter, you've had a pleasant run. Shall we be trotting home again? But answer came there none. And this was scarcely odd, because they'd eaten every one. The End Um, uh, yeah... All right, so we get this interesting divided conversation, right? Um, It seems a shame the walrus said to play them such a trick. After we've brought them out so far and made them trot so quick, who's he talking to? Um, He's talking to the carpenter, right? And the carpenter responds to him, the butter spread too thick. Carpenter doesn't care. Again. Then the walrus says, I weep for you. I deeply sympathize. About the butter? Is he still talking to the carpenter? The butter spread too thick. I weep for you. I deeply sympathize. Um. No, he's still talking to the oysters. It was so kind of you to come and you were very nice. Right? The you seems consistently, the oysters. With sobs and tears, he sorted out those of the largest size, holding his pocket handkerchief before his streaming eyes. So the walrus is feeling guilty, right? He sympathizes for the oysters, sort of. Um, yeah. No for Thomas the problem is the, there's too much butter butter scraped over too little bread yeah exactly that's a, um, it's a different sort of problem isn't it the carpenter at the end um, the carpenter at the end addresses the oysters again oh oysters you've had a pleasant run Shall we be trotting home again? After they've eaten them all. But answer came there none. What a great line that is. Um, run, none, one. Yeah, Jackrabbit. Jack Herbert says, Carol told the illustrator that if he didn't like drawing a carpenter, then anything of three syllables would work, provided the emphasis was on the first syllable. Um, Carol suggested baronet or butterfly, if Tennille liked that better. Yeah, yeah. Um, Surely the carpenter doesn't matter, right? Uh, That is, his carpentry... Would seem to be utterly irrelevant to the poem. I agree. Um, another emphasis, another way, Jack. You can see uh, how the uh, how much emphasis Lewis Carroll places on the um, the rhythm of the poem. Right? Um, why did he make the other character a carpenter? because the rhythm of the word was right. That's why, right? Um, now, I agree, Mo Dillon, the walrus and the butterfly would sound a little stranger. The uh, A butterfly eating oysters would sound a little stranger. What do you make of this poem? What is this? What is the effect of this story? Alice is not a fan. Right? Alice is not a fan. Um, Alice is not a fan because she says they're both very unpleasant characters. She's certainly right. Yes, this is the Tweedles reciting it fourth Dauntless. Yep, that's right. Um, The effect is to traumatize me into never eating oysters again. I hear that. I hear that. And of course, as several of you were observing before, we do get that reversal at the end. And this was scarcely odd because they'd eaten every one. right? And this was odd because is a thing we've gotten twice before. And now at the end, and this was scarcely odd, we have the logical and satisfying ending. It is scarcely odd that answer came there none because they'd eaten everyone. Um, I've never had any clear handle on what this poem is doing in this book. I think it is a really fun poem. Um, it works works on several different levels. Like the rhythm of this poem is intrinsically playful. It sounds fun, and I think it would sound fun even if you didn't know English. Just hearing it. Sounds fun. Um, If you do know English, it has the appearance of fun, still, of random, silly fun. A walrus and the carpenter taking oysters on a walk, right? And then, even though they don't have any feet, um, and then telling them stories. But then with a sort of horrifying turn and then eating them, even though the walrus continues speaking pleasantly to the oysters. Right. Um, but, yeah, there's definitely an air of menace. Absolutely. Um, At the same time, it's not really a horror story. I mean, the jokes that several of you are making about being traumatized out of eating oysters are perfectly relevant, right? If you respond and say, they're horrible for eating oysters. Well, um, people eat oysters all the time it's perfectly normal. Right? There's nothing especially strange or savage about eating oysters. It's not like this is a story about actual children who are ripped up to pieces or something. Right? This is not like a, a serial killer story. At the end of the day, both walruses and carpenters eat oysters. What's strange about that? You know, what's especially horrifying about that. Nothing, nothing. It's totally fine. Um, Notice how, again, the turn in the poem happens in stanza group five, right? Um, In the fifth triad of stanzas. Like the turn in stanza one happens in line five. And that was odd because it was the middle of the night. The only thing that's odd about eating, about this particular meal of oysters, I mean, bringing oysters to the beach, sitting on a rock conveniently low, and having uh, an elegant oyster snack, right? Live oysters with bread and butter, some pepper and vinegar besides... Well, that sounds like um, a quite pleasant outing, in fact, right? I mean, you know, that sounds to me like an above-average beach day, actually, right? Um, Now, of course, I'm not resisting the idea that, yes, obviously, there is something horrifying about this, the way that the oysters are made parallel to children, even though they're not children, right? They didn't have to do it that way. There clearly is treachery there as well, right? Um, And yet um, there is clearly the shape of a normal, a relatively normal situation which honestly would be normal either for walruses or for carpenters, frankly. Right? So like, imagine you had just two people going for a walk down a beach and they're carrying a picnic basket. And in their picnic basket, you discover there are oysters. And they bring their picnic basket and they take a pleasant walk down the beach. And then they find a rock conveniently low and they sit down and bring out bread and butter and eat oysters while looking out to sea. That would be normal, wouldn't it? Right? That's the, just as it's normal for the sun to be shining on the sea, shining with all his might, right? That's normal too, until we find out that it's in the middle of the night. And... That seems to me a similar kind of thing with the turn here in this poem. The walrus and the carpenter taking the pediatric oysters for a stroll without feet, Um, and then turning upon them and eating them, right? I mean, clearly, those last two lines of that turn stanza. Now, if you're ready, oysters, dear, we can begin to feed. But not on us, the oysters cried. Um, They haven't had... No, they have had voices before this, but... um, Even the potential dual meaning of his words, right? We can begin to feed. That is, it's time for a picnic. And the oysters... So even the turn hasn't fully happened yet, right? Right? Um, it would be a dismal thing to do, to feed on us after such kindness. And the walrus avoids the answer, because of course it would be dismal. It seems a shame to play them such a trick, as he admits later on. Um, yes. I do agree, begin to feed is somewhat creepier than begin to eat. Surely. Surely. Um... Yeah, Um, fourth dauntless. I don't know about the oysters looking blue I feel like there has to be a joke there are there blue oysters like is that a popular kind of oyster that one eats one would order blue oysters in restaurants that's my it sounds like that to me but I don't know enough about oysters uh, to know Um, yeah begin to feed does sound more bestial But then again, in defense of the walrus, he's a beast, right? Um, Yeah, the Blue Oyster Cult was all I was thinking of too, but I don't know if that's... um, I mean, the fact that it's a band name doesn't necessarily prove that there are Blue Oysters, but um, yeah, Karina, I figure the name must probably come from somewhere too. that's why that there might be blue oysters and that blue oysters might be popular. Um, I think that's what planted that idea in my own head. Um, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm going back to those opening stanzas. And I, I'm trying here in particular um to think about those tautologies okay here's my thought my thought was forming there the beginning of the poem establishes normal things acting in abnormal ways right it's saturnalia topsy turvy right the sun is up in the middle of the night right cats and dogs jumping over moons and whatever right then we get tautologies the sea is wet sand is dry there are no birds because there are no birds Right. Does this map onto the shape and the turn um, that we get in uh, the shape and the turn that we get in the poem? A walrus and a carpenter taking a bunch of oysters on a pleasant walk is strange. Right. Like come on a walk on the beach with us. And the oyster is running up, you know, preparing to go on the walk together. That's strange. That's topsy-turvy. Right. Then the the walrus and the carpenter sit down and eat oysters which is the reassertion of that's normal again not trying to pretend it's not horrifying again but it's that it's the normality of that that forms the backdrop here right this would be a completely different story if eating oysters weren't normal even eating oysters raw on the beach is normal it's a normal thing to do there's nothing wrong with that right normally um, we go from topsy-turvy to flat normality at the beginning of the poem we reassert the normal relationship between both walruses and carpenters and oysters when they start eating them at the end. Um, It does begin to sound like you could do a kind of quasi-allegorical reading of it like that, JJ. Come walk with us bit. Uh, The the come walk with us bit could almost be a thing they'd said as they were collecting oysters, with the old one just being particularly tough to collect off his rock, and so they can't, you know, they can't fish him up, they can't get him. So yeah, you're just you're out there and you're. I mean, it's like a clam bake. Ever had a clam bake? Right. First, you get, you catch some clams, and then you bake them or boil them on the beach and eat them on the beach. What could be better? That's just what they're doing, right? Collecting oysters, taking them for a walk on the beach, sitting down and eating them on the beach. What could be nicer? Right? Um, Yeah. Yeah. That normality is made strange by the topsy-turviness. And it's made more than strange. It's made sinister by the whole pediatric thing, especially since Like, let's gather children and tell them a story and then eat them. I mean, in the context of a book, which is a story that you're supposed to read to children, right? Um, uh, So, like, whatever you do, don't say to the the child the next night, um, the time has come to speak of many things, of ships and shoes and sealing wax, of cabbages and kings. Um, by the way, I would absolutely love it if like a murderer in a movie were to deliver that line, right? If he was like about to kill people and, uh, first deliver that line, I think that would be amazing. Just saying. I think that'd be really cool. But anyway, um, yeah, JJ says, this is the point When the adult closes the book and says, "Okay, time for dinner," yeah, exactly. If you're ready, oysters, dear, we can begin to feed. Again, the more you think about the entire situation, the more normal every day. Like, or rather, to say it another way, I'm not trying. Again, I'm not trying to assert that this is all normal and everyday. I'm saying it's taking a normal and everyday thing like the sun shining, right? Um, But by placing it in a new new context, like, say, the middle of the night, um, it places... It makes that normal thing look very, very different. Um, Yeah. Jocelyn... That is a great question. Why do so many of us say this is our favorite poem in the story? It's a fun poem. I love this poem. This poem makes me laugh. And isn't that something? Right? And here's another question. It's not just us. Why did Lewis and Tolkien both love this poem so much? Why did Tolkien love this poem so much that he translated the entire thing into Quenya? When he wanted an exercise as he was developing Quenya and said, I'm going to take an English poem and I'm going to translate that poem into Quenya in order to practice utilizing Quenya um, and adapting Quenya poetics. He chose the walrus and the carpenter like that was he's like, that was his go to. Oh, yeah. Walrus and the carpenter. That's what I'll do. Dollarstruck, I do not at all blame him for not translating Jabberwocky into Quenya. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the poem does... I go back to... Oh, I now I forget who said it. Jackrabbit, was it you? Who was talking about the face on the clock? Um, there are parallels between the relationship that this story has with, like, the normal world, the regular world, in which people might go for a stroll on the beach and have the equivalent of an oyster bake, except no baking involved, right? Um... So you've got the, the, this sort of, um, it's not just the topsy-turviness, just as we see in those opening stanzas. It's not merely that everything is topsy-turvy. Everything is a little bit topsy-turvy and then gets reasserted, right, in tautologies. The most normal of all normal things. What we get is this picture, which can't help but reflect on the real world. It's a very uncomfortable poem in that way. Thinking about eating oysters, right? Um, Yeah, there's a distortion of reality. I agree. There is a distortion. And it's a different kind than we've seen before. But again, when I, the reason I think it's so important that, at the end of the day, it's an oyster eating story, um, is that it does. If we dislike it too hard, it implicates us, at least the oyster eaters among us, right? Um, it's a distortion of reality, but it's not just a distortion. It's also related to reality. There's also a the sea was wet as wet can be element of the story as well. Um, Just as we see some things in Looking Glass Land are reversed. But things are not just reversed. The relationship between Looking Glass Land and our world is much more complicated than that. Um, Yeah, Jack Rabbit, it's as though Looking-glass land holds a mirror up to our world and makes us see it with new eyes. And we're doing all this, the Shakespeare stuff tonight. Um, sorry, that's a quotation um, from Dr. Johnson. Um, Samuel Johnson's famous essay on Shakespeare, where he said that Shakespeare holds a mirror up to nature um which is a was an iconic essay everybody read shakespeare and in the 18th century everybody read dr johnson um dr johnson's essay on shakespeare immensely influential and so that idea of holding a mirror up uh to things is uh, what like worked its way into pop culture basically as an idea um yeah yeah um he, looking glass land does hold a mirror up to our world and make us see it with new eyes um, in, in certain ways, right? Um, yeah, I do think in the end, the poem seems to point us in that direction. I want to keep going, because I want to see if we can get to the end of uh, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, so we spent only two weeks on this chapter. Um, After the poem, and Alice dislikes the poem, and she dislikes both characters, Wallace and the Carpenter, alike, um, they then see the Red King, and the Red King is asleep. Um, And Tweedledum and Tweedledee tell her that she is only a figure, she's only a figment in his dream. They ask her, what is he dreaming about, do you think? And she says, how can I know? And they say, well, he's dreaming of you, of course. You're only a thing in his dream. He shouted this so loud that Alice couldn't help saying, hush, you'll be waking him, I'm afraid, if you make so much noise. Well, it's no use you're talking about waking him, said Tweedledum. When you're only one of the things in his dream, you know very well you're not real. I am real, said Alice, and began to cry. You won't make yourself a bit realer by crying, Tweedledee remarked. There's nothing to cry about. If I wasn't real, Alice said, half laughing through her tears, it all seemed so ridiculous, I shouldn't be able to cry. I hope you don't suppose those are real tears, Tweedledum interrupted in a tone of great contempt. Um... It's no use you're talking about waking him when you're only one of the things in his dream. You know very well you're not real. Um, my favorite line on this slide is Tweedledee saying, there's nothing to cry about. You won't make yourself a bit realer by crying. There's nothing to cry about because you're not real. So there's nothing to cry about because you're not even really here. Um, Alice is shaken up by the idea that she is only a dream. There has been surely some suspicion on Alice's part that she is having a dream and that all of these people she is meeting um, are only dream figments and that nothing that she's seeing is actually real and that's why it's so strange but within that meeting right within that world she sees a sleeper and is told that she herself is only his dream. Notice the sort of um, really complex levels of that. She's not sure if she's dreaming and Tweedledum and Tweedledee are figments in her dream, which would also make the Red King a figment of her dream. She's dreaming that she's seeing the Red King dreaming. But she might just be a figure in his dream, which turns everything inside out, right? Um, So that... Even the real world itself is not the real world. And all of this is only a derivative of the Red King's dream, after all. Right? Um. And notice there's nothing that she can do that can disprove this theory. She's utterly helpless to resist the notion. Once it's stated, if she's only a thing in his dream, she can't possibly prove that she's not. Her attempt is fairly weak. If if I wasn't real, I shouldn't be able to cry. Well, yeah, he could be dreaming that you're crying. I don't suppose those are real tears, right? This, of course is why although the reference is to the white rabbit the, the reference made is to the white rabbit throughout the references to alice in wonderland but i think that the writers of the matrix were actually thinking of through the looking glass um the question of who dreamed it right whose dream um whose dream who is dreaming what and who is going to wake up and reassert reality, right? This is, of course, what the film, The Matrix, is playing with, and there's lots of Alice Carroll stuff. I don't know if you remember the Alice Carroll stuff with the white rabbit, uh, following the white rabbit down the rabbit hole, and then Morpheus makes that comment about, you know, we'll see how deep this rabbit hole goes. Um, So again, it's all allusions to Alice in Wonderland, but I think the actual framework of their contemplation there is really um, from Through the Looking Glass and this kind of thing here. Um, are dreams thought of as mirrors? Well, that's exactly the question. What's the relationship between the dream world, between a dream world and the real world? Um, How does that relationship work? How does that go? Um, Yeah. Yeah. uh, It's a lot like the questions that we've been asking about the relationship between Looking Glass World and the real world. Right. Well, Alice is gonna come back to this. This is this issue is not resolved, because suddenly it gets interrupted Um by Tweedledum seeing a rattle on the ground. Did you see that? he said in a voice choking with passion, and his eyes grew large and yellow all in a moment as he pointed with a trembling figure at a small white thing lying under the tree. "'It's only a rattle,' Alice said, after a careful examination of the little white thing. "'Not a rattle snake, you know,' she added hastily, thinking that he was frightened. "'Only an old rattle, quite old and broken.' "'I knew it was!' cried Tweedledum, beginning to stamp about wildly and tear his hair. "'It's spoilt, of course!' Here he looked at Tweedledee, who immediately sat down on the ground and tried to hide himself under the umbrella." Alice laid her hand upon his arm and said in a soothing tone, you needn't be so angry about an old rattle. Here, of course, is where the prophecy contained in Alice's poem is beginning to come true. Right? The breaking of the nice new rattle is in the original poem. Right? Um, the uh Let's. We only have a couple minutes left. But let's relook at that for a second. Hang on. I didn't. I don't have it on this week's slides. Let's go to the last one. Because I have it here. Yeah. Okay. Tweedledum and Tweedledee agreed to have a battle. For Tweedledum said Tweedledee had spoiled his nice new rattle. Just then flew down a monstrous crow as black as a tar barrel, which frightened both the heroes so they quite forgot their quarrel. Okay. So the elements are the grievance, which is the spoiling of a nice new rattle. And then the fact that they don't just have a battle. They agree to have a battle, right? There's a, there is, this is a consensual entering into battle, um, to settle the, uh, the nice new rattle spoiling issue. And then they're interrupted by a monstrous crow, which frightens them and they forget their quarrel. So this is that's the narrative of Tweedledum and Tweedledee, which Alice could not get out of her head at the beginning. Okay, enough of last week's slides. Sorry, I should have remembered to include that again in this uh, in this week's, but I forgot to. Um, <clears throat> she knows the story she was assuming she knew their story who they were and what they were about <clears throat> but when it begins to happen Alice is confused why are you so upset it's only a rattle only an old rattle she doesn't remember the poem or at least so it would seem um, they agreed to have their battle in fact they that gets drawn out quite a bit right. Um, uh, with them being very brave and then they don't really want to have a battle and then protecting themselves from any harm um, and uh, it, it, it's of course a perfectly ridiculous battle Um such that Alice says, I wish the monstrous crow would come. She does remember the poem, right? And she knows that the arrival of the monstrous crow is going to stop the battle, and she can get on with things, right? They're continuing to talk about their battle agreements. There's only one sword you know, Tweedledum said to his brother, but you can have the umbrella. It's quite a sharp meaning the sword is not very sharp at all. Only we must begin quick. It's getting as dark as it can. And darker, said Tweedledee. It was getting dark so suddenly that Alice thought there must be a thunderstorm coming on. What a thick black cloud that is, she said. And how fast it comes. Why, I do believe it's got wings. It's the crow, Tweedledum cried out in a shrill voice of alarm, and the two brothers took to their heels and were out of sight in a moment. Um, yeah, J.J., she does seem to get wrapped up after talking with them, seeing them as real. Notice how this sort of corresponds with their conversation in which they say that Alice is obviously not real. Are they real people doing real things, right? They're just, if she is just a kind of figure in the dream of the Red King... Aren't they just figures in a nursery rhyme that she knows who don't have any choice about what they do or what they're like, right? Um, and in fact, we see them inescapably following the, uh, the plot, right? What else can Tweedledum and Tweedledee do except agree to have a battle Uh, because of the spoiling of the nice new rattle. Even Alice's comment that it's quite an old rattle suggests perhaps this has happened many times before. Who knows when the rattle was actually spoiled, right? Um, But the rattle ever to be re-observed, ever to spark a new battle, which is then ever to be broken up by the arrival of the monstrous crows? Crow, singular. Only one crow. Not a murder, nor a genocide, nor nor an extinction, just a singular crow. Um, are they real? To what extent are they real? Um, are they part of her dream? Is she in control? In a sense? Is she just remembering this nursery rhyme about Tweedledum and Tweedledee? And dreaming that it's real again I think it's very interesting it's very important that that question about her being real uh, and about the uh, um, the Red King dreaming her right. Um, it's very important that that's placed not only right in the middle of the Tweedledum and Tweedledee chapter but right before they start enacting the nursery rhyme again in that way. All right. Um, we're coming to the end and we're, I I'm not going to start chapter five. I was going to start chapter five and talk a little bit about the white queen, but we can, we can wait. We'll do chapter five next week. Um, thanks everybody for joining me. Don't forget. Um, Our fundraising campaign continues. Please do consider uh, making a a donation to support Signum University. And I, again, thank you to everybody um, who already are, and uh, many of you have been supporting Signum uh, for many years already. Thank you so much for your encouragement and support. Um, We have a couple campaign events that are coming up. Um, uh, Most important, I I want to... Uh, draw your attention to the Webathon. It's going to be happening on Saturday, the 19th. So our our campaign-ending Webathon, where I'm going to be giving my State of the University address, which is an annual tradition, where I look at what's been happening at Signum and what's planned at Signum. Where are we headed and what are we doing and why are we going there? These are some of the questions that I'm going to be answering at the Webathon on Saturday. It'll be, be, yes, Saturday afternoon, the 19th. Exact schedule to be posted soon. Um, But... um, uh, but, yeah, next Saturday is when the Webathon is going to be happening. Um, and, um, uh, and yeah, and, uh, this weekend I'm having my Lord of the Rings Online Marathon, which is a campaign tradition. Uh, so I'll be doing my Locho Marathon on Saturday, which is always a lot of fun. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us. And I will see you guys next week. Bye now.